Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, March 16th, 2015. Okay, so North Dakota in spring is a little interesting. Yesterday it was 70 degrees. This morning, there were little snowflakes flying around. I'm not saying the weather's temperamental, but that's quite a swing. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being sent out there, and we take the time to put things back in context, you know, like open up God's Word, you should try this sometime, and, you know, take a look using sound biblical hermeneutics, good exegesis, to see if the message is being taught to us by the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, authors, and people put out by the evangelical industrial complex as, as those whose books we need to be buying those whose sermons we need to be listening to, those whose leadership models and ministry techniques we need to be employing in our church so that we can be relevant and make the church and Jesus irresistible to the world. You know, <laughs> sorry, I was thinking about Andy Stanley, that whole temple model thing. Yeah. Why do I feel like somebody's got to write a book length critique of what that man is doing? Anyway, so. Bunny trail here. So that's what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. We try to have a little bit of fun along the way. And I got to tell you this. I, I just have to tell you this. I think we have found, no joke, I think we have found William Tapley's son. You know, you were wondering who he's co-profiting with. Well, today on Fighting for the Faith, we are going to be listening to um, somebody's whose website channel is entitled The Vigilant Christian. The Vigilant Christian well, <laughs> YouTube channel, and you got to tell you, this kid's got way more uh, followers than William Tapley, and uh, <laughs> he is just as goofy and wow conspiratorial as uh, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times. Just what we need. So what we're going to do today, we're going to start up with the an end-of-the-world update. And that, that's what we'll call it, an end-of-the-world update. It, it, we're going to expand our horizons beyond William Tapley. And William Tapley will show up during our end-of-the-world updates, but whenever he shows up, he gets his own music because, you know, he really is the king. 
of <clears throat> eschatological insights. And uh, so we'll be listening to uh, <laughs> the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the vigilant Christian talking about the iPhone 6 and the iPhone smartwatch exposed as tools of the Illuminati. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so if you are an Apple user like I am, which which is weird, you know, because um, I've been an Apple Macintosh user ever since I was finished high school, actually. When I finished high school, uh, so I'm 18 years old, and it's the summer before I go to college, and I work two jobs in order to afford my first Macintosh. And, <laughs> oh boy, I mean, talk about expensive. But, uh, yeah, it, I, I had to work two jobs in order to save up in order to get my first Macintosh. Macintosh 512KE. Yeah, E. If you if you are <clears throat> old like me, then you know that the E stood for enhance, which means that the hard drive could read double sided floppy disks. And uh, <laughs> well, I mean that's like double the storage. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, yeah, boy, do I remember those days. So yeah, you know, I've been an Apple user since 1986, and uh, that means apparently I've been a tool of the Illuminati and uh, and probably won't even survive the Battle of Armageddon and definitely, you know, probably somewhere hidden on my body is, is the mark of the beast, apparently. I, well, we're going to find out from the uh, vigilant Christian what this is all about. So then what we're going to do, and boy, i got to tell you, I am debating who I want to slot out next. I think since we're going to be doing a an end of the world update, I found an interview that uh, Jonathan Kahn, the author of Mystery of the Shemitah, did with a gentleman by the name of Greg Hunter. And uh, and he just lays out this whole Shemitah business. And uh, we've done this from time to time. And listen, if you know anybody who thinks that there's something to this Shemitah business and that somehow... The U.S. economy on Elul 29 or whatever is going to uh, experience, you know, catastrophic, cataclysmic whatevers as a result of the fact that the United States hasn't properly um, observed the Sabbath years in the year of Jubilee. Well, um, you need to hear it from Jonathan Kahn so you can kind of understand what the problem is. I'll walk you through the passages that are relevant to show that, uh, yeah, this is a lot of smoke and mirrors, and unfortunately, Jonathan Kahn has made himself something of a celebrity and quite a bit of money, um, basically trafficking in um, <clears throat> Jewish-ish uh, false doctrine, you know, Hebrew-ish uh, false doctrine. And the reason why is because it doesn't recognize that the uh, United States of America is not a signatory on the uh, Mosaic Covenant. So then we'll switch gears again, and uh, we're going to be listening to um, our good friend from Faith Church St. Louis, David Crank, and uh, listen to part of a recent message that he delivered out there at Faith Church in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, I have no idea what he's talking about, no clue whatsoever. And just to make matters worse, I might make this a twin spin and uh, let the cranks together, you know, you know, kind of tag team teach here. And <laughs> yeah, we'll switch back and forth between, you know, the sermon from this past week and the sermon from uh, Wednesday of last week where um, <clears throat> Nicole Crank preached and uh, see if you can make any sense of this stuff. And then in hour number two, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to head down to New Spring in Anderson, South Carolina, and uh, we're not going to be listening to a Perry Noble sermon no, we're going to be listening to a sermon delivered by Caleb White. Not sure who he is, 
But uh, the current sermon series they're in over at New Spring Church is entitled, I Love the 90s. And uh, yeah, so the big hook, the big draw, the re- reason why the the unchurched would want to come to New Spring Church is because, uh, well, they love the music from the 1990s. Now, see, here here's the thing. You know, I grew up in, you know, 70s and 80s, and by the time my kids were born and young, you know, I just didn't have time to listen to the music of the 90s. So, you know, I kind of totally, totally was, you know, out of the loop with just a few exceptions. I mean, I do remember, I mean, was it uh, the Eagles had a comeback during? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't count, does it? Anyway, uh, so we're going to be listening to this sermon. And I think this is another example of um, what I would consider um, what we talked about last week on Monday, the lecture that I gave talking about the problem with purpose-driven preaching is the worldview it's coming from is a confusion of law and gospel, and uh, literally everything gets run through the opinio legis. Although Caleb White, you can tell he understands something about the fact that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works, yet his preaching errs on the side of not correctly distinguishing law and gospel, and that it's the gospel, the gospel, the gospel that is the power of uh, justification and our sanctification, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Somehow people get this false idea that, well, all right, so now I'm a Christian. So the gospel goes into the rearview mirror way in the distance. Goodbye, gospel. And now I get to really get to work. Yeah, see, when you do that, you're going to burn yourself out. It's always law and gospel, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Gospel to convict us of our sins. Uh, Not the gospel, the law to convict us of our sins. Gospel to comfort us. And to uh, assure us of our right standing before God, and then you can, you can, and then you know, for the uh, the third use of the law, which is a use only for Christians, is it shows us what God's will is and what it looks like to walk in freedom. And uh, but yeah, unfortunately, the way Caleb runs his verbs, uh, yeah, it's kind of this typical "you got to sell out for Jesus" kind of thing. And uh, yeah, again, it it's real super de duper heavy. On the law, so that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith on Monday to kind of get things started. And since we're going to begin with an end of the world update, well, that requires us to do this. That's great. It starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes, an airplane. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself. Turn Sing along if you know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Yeah, that's right. It's been a while since we've played that because, I mean, (laughs) a while ago we made the switch to Doom and Gloom coming soon. But apparently, William Tapley has offspring, and uh, they too are (laughs) adept at using YouTube to spread the word of impending doom. 
And so I take you now to the Vigilant Christian YouTube channel where we will be exposed to the truth regarding Apple Computer, the Illuminati, the iPhone 6, and their use of the smartwatch in order to, well, you know, help us all become tools of the devil. Here's the Vigilant Christian to explain. Yeah, this is their dramatic opening music. Hey everyone, it's the Vigilant Christian Mario, and you're here for another edition of New World Order Exposed. In today's video, I wanted to talk about the Illuminati's agenda to use the Apple Computer Company to brainwash the masses in preparation for the transhumanist evolution, as well as prepare them to accept the mark of the beast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, wait a second. I have an Apple Computer open on my desk, and it's looking at me right now! Oh, no. I'm feeling brainwashed. I'm going to accept transhumanism. <laughs> what on earth? That's what we're going to look at in today's video. Now, before I talk about that, I just want to point out some obvious signs that show that the Apple Computer Company is a sinister company being used in the Illuminati agenda to prepare the, anti, uh, the Antichrist kingdom. All so right, so uh, there is sinister. Apple is sinister. And, uh, you know, it's, since they're a sinister company, you know, it behooves me to play our sinister sound music. Apple is a tool of the Illuminati designed to prepare the way. For the coming Antichrist kingdom. They are in league with the devil. And because of them, we're all going to take the mark of the transhuman beast. Yes, this is terrible. Oh, man. We continue. The thing that you just need to do is look at the logo. It's an apple, and there's a bite out of it. So Yeah, there is. There's a, it's an apple, and there's a bite taken out of it. Well, that proves it right there. Trying to say and symbolize with this logo. If you look at the official story, you're never going to get the truth. We're dealing with satanic secret societies. They keep... Ah, satanic secret societies. They want to let everybody know without letting anybody know what the real truth is. Got it. So, it doesn't matter what... The official story is there's really something else going on here. Oh, and by the way, when you read the Bible in Genesis, by the way, because I think he's alluding to Genesis chapter 3 here, it doesn't say what the fruit was now, does it? It wasn't an apple because we've been eating apples ever since. Uh, the, we have no idea what the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil actually looked like, do we? Everything secret. And if they expose those secrets, in fact, they die. So it is a very highly secretive uh, organization. So they're not going to come out publicly and say, yeah, our logo is the forbidden fruit from the Garden of Eden that brought death and destruction and sin into the world. No, but of course they would never do that. They're a secret society. They can't say that publicly because if they did, they would die. They see it as enlightenment. So this is a symbol from Apple Computer of satanic Luciferian enlightenment, that godhood can be achieved by a bite out of the forbidden fruit. Uh-huh. See, uh, uh, those of you Apple users like me, well, you're going to have to burn your Apple computers and, um, and start using Windows machines. Oh, this is really going to stink. But all these people are walking around with their little iPhones, and on the back of it is a symbol of Genesis, the forbidden fruit, the fall of mankind, on the back of our phones. 
Um, but people are brainwashed. They don't even see this. Uh, they can even go back and look at the first Mac computer being sold for $666. Hmm. You think that's a coincidence? Bite into the knowledge for $666? Oh, know- no. He's got a black and white photocopy of uh, a newspaper ad of the first ever Apple computer selling for $666. Wait a second. It's $666.66. There was no 66 cents mentioned in the uh, book of Revelation. The symbolism here that's hidden right in front of your face and they're just laughing at you. I mean, they use this symbol for the forbidden fruit. They use the number of the beast. According to the Bible, that number is 666. That's the number of the beast. Wake up, people. Yeah, so if you're using an Apple iPhone, You have a Macintosh laptop, MacBook Pro, or MacBook, or MacBook Air. You're using an iMac, or any of those high-end powered Macintoshes for video editing and things like this. You're doomed. You're doomed. When when Jesus comes back, the the angels are going to take your little carcass and throw you into hell because you already have the mark of the beast on you. Right is using the Forbidden Fruit as a logo, sells its first computer for $666, then goes around calling its products iPod, iPhone, iPad, iThis, iThat. And we obviously know that the Illuminati used the Eye of Ra as symbolism. So it's no... Yeah, we do. I thought they were a secret society. How do we know that? ...that all their products start with I, and we have the Forbidden Fruit on the back of it. And the first one sold... Yeah, listen, uh, that's spelled differently. iPhone has the letter I, and then, you know, like the I of raw, that would be E-Y-E. Big difference between the two, by the way. Can you read? $666. Right, this is all coincidence. Right. Also, a Apple store was built in the shape of a pyramid, and we all know that they love their pyramid. <laughs> Novus Order Seclorum, the New World Order of the Illuminati, this secret society, this organization, the secret cabal of Luciferians. They also use the cube, and if you're familiar with Saturn worship... So let me see if I have this right. Because there's an Apple store that has a glass pyramid... And there's an Apple store that has a glass cube. Oh, that's even further proof that they got, these guys are in it deep to try to bring out the Antichrist. Right. Something that the Illuminati are into, you know that that's a huge symbol for them. So, in recapping, we have the cube of Saturn being used as symbolism. We have the pyramid being used as symbolism. The first Mac computer was just coincidentally sold for the number of the beast, 666. All their products are named I, iPhone, iPad, I this. And, like, come on. You just saw what I presented. Come on, people. Wake up. Now, here's the thing. We're dealing... Yeah, um... Mario, wake up. This is ridiculous. I mean, this is literally like nonsense that you're passing off as somehow a warning about the end times. Oh, man. Yeah, with friends like this, I mean, who needs enemies? I mean, seriously. This is another example of what we call here at Fighting for the Faith Great Commission Creep. That's right. Rather than proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins, calling people to repent, to be forgiven, which is what Christians are to be doing, and teaching that which is in accord with sound doctrine, all the things that Christ has told us and commanded that we need to learn, which is all the scripture, the full counsel of the Word of God. No, instead, we got guys like Mario from Vigilant Christian 
uh, who, who clearly I think he's related to uh, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse in some way, because, I mean, he sees the evils of the Illuminati and like iPad commercials and stuff like this. And who knew that because there's an Apple store out there that has a glass cube? Well, that's them telegraphing, letting the world know without letting them know that, uh, oh, we're, we're paving the way for the Antichrist. Yeah, um, yeah. When you major in the minors, you end up losing the gospel and actually losing the mission of the church. This is, yeah. So if you know anybody out there who's super-de-duper worried, you know, that uh, that somehow they have the mark of the beast because they own Apple products, assure them that that is not the case. Uh, because Scripture makes it clear, the mark of the beast, you can't even buy or sell unless you take this mark. And taking the mark is a sign of your worship and allegiance to the Antichrist, as described in uh, Revelation. So, uh, yeah, somebody out there going and purchasing an Apple product does not mean whatsoever that somehow they are, you know, you get what I'm saying. Moving along. Time for a Shemitah update. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there. When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare, I bought a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are standing in a row Big ones, small ones, some as big as your head Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts Every ball you throw will make me rich There stands me wife, the idol of me life Sing and roll a bowl, a ball, a penny, a pitch Sing and roll a bowl, a ball, a penny, a pitch Roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Roll a bowl a ball, roll a bowl a ball, sing and roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. That's our um, our music we use from time to time for. Um, let's how, how do we put this uh, politely? Uh, basically, segments where the doctrine is just absolutely nonsense, and unfortunately. The uh, the day we live in, people who call themselves Christians, well, if it's in the Bible, it's got to be true. And uh, if somebody is, you know, somehow related to, you know, being a son of Abraham, well, then it's got to be doubly true if they write a book about it. And, uh, you know, so uh, what we're going to be talking about here, we're going to be listening to Greg Hunter's YouTube channel as he uh, performs a Skype interview with uh, Jonathan Kahn talking about the so-called mystery of the Shemitah. And Jonathan Kahn does a fantastic job of describing the basic premise of the book, and in so doing gives us an opportunity to open up our Bible and look at the New Testament to see if uh, the Mosaic Covenant is still in effect. And if we, as the United States, had somehow become signatories on to the... Mosaic Covenant. Here's uh, Greg Hunter to introduce his uh, video interview with Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. Here we go. I'm Greg Hunter. Welcome to USAWatchdog.com. With us a brand new guest. He's a best-selling author. He sold more than two million books of this book right here, The Harbinger. He's got a new, his latest book out is called The Mysteries of the Shemitah. If you guessed Jonathan Kahn, you guessed correctly Jonathan Kahn. Thank you for joining us today from New Jersey. Great to be with you, Greg. Really? Uh, 
I know that you, you wrote this huge bestseller. Really, these are kind of companion books. I went through it for you know, about two hours last night and said, wow, this really kind of goes with this. And this is your Two whole hours. Yeah, wow, that makes you a Bible scholar. Book, and this is The, uh, the Mysteries of the Shemitah. Uh, and you said in this book uh, that you didn't really want to write this book, that the book authors or the book publishers came to you and said, uh, why don't you write a book? And you said, I don't want to write a book that dates things. Could you explain what, uh, why you didn't want to write this book initially and, and what the Shemitah is? It's about dating, you know, calamity and about seven-year cycles. I'm oversimplified, I know. But can you tell me what Shemitah is and why didn't you want to write this book initially? Yeah, well, it was, you know, I'd written The Harbinger, and, you know, so there was a lot of speculation concerning the Shemitah, which begins in The Harbinger, and that concerns this year that we're in right now. And I, I didn't want people to be focusing or make their main focus dates or date dates. So that was one thing. Um, that the- yeah, now, this is what we call doublespeak. Yeah, you, let me give you an example of doublespeak. What's the very first sentence uh, in Chapter 1 of the book, The Purpose Driven Life? Well, the sentence reads, it's not about you. And then from that point on, Rick Warren spends 300-something pages while talking about you. So here Rabbi Jonathan Kahn says, I didn't want to write this book. I didn't want people focusing on dates and calamity. And you know, when, the, when the book publisher came to me and said they wanted me to write, I didn't, but I, but I wrote it. And uh, it's focusing on dates and calamity. So this is doublespeak. This is what this is. For as much as he's protesting that he didn't want to write a book, like this book, about dates and calamities and focus everybody on dates and calamities, he wrote the book anyway, and it's been published, hasn't it? The bigger picture. Um, but the Schmidt, but the thing is that there was so much here, and when I started pondering it, there was, it was so gigantic, this mystery, that it has been affecting all of our lives since notice how he's talking about it this mystery this the mystery of the of the shemitah <laughs> where in scripture is the shemitah described as a mystery the shemitah is well was given as part of the mosaic covenant revealed at mount sinai and it wasn't a mystery it was part of the uh, rules and regulations that the uh, people of israel had to obey during uh, the theocracy in ancient Israel. There's no mystery uh, you know, assigned to this in Scripture. We were born. I mean, this, been, this is be, the mystery behind the rise and fall of the economy, the, the crashing when Wall Street crashes, uh, even the rise and fall of nations when America rose, what may be the fall of America. Um, it is so precise that... as. Now, notice the way he's talking about it. this mystery. It 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 this, it down. It's so precise in its in its predictive power regarding the rise and fall of nations and economies and stuff like that. Notice what he's doing. He's taking the Mosaic Covenant and literally using it the same way astrologers use the stars to predict people's futures and cast their horoscopes. So this is a, if you would. Uh, turning the Mosaic Covenant into you know, an astrological chart, a mystery to be plumbed so that it can pr- give us a crystal ball prediction for the future. This is no way to treat God's Word. You know, it's the only source uh, or the only thing in existence that actually gives the, the dates, not just the times of the greatest crashes of Wall Street, but the actual dates down to the hours of when Wall Street crashes. And this is long before it ever happened. So... That the mystery of the Shemitah goes back three thousand years, and the it begins on Mount Sinai actually, 
when the law of the Shemitah comes to Israel, and what basically was this, every seven days was a day, but every seven years, most people don't know, was a Sabbath year. Yeah, so every seven days is a Sabbath, every seven years is a Sabbath year. What he's describing is true. The year was called the Shemitah, and during that year, it's a total economic rest. There's no sowing, reaping of the land. There's no buying or selling of the fruits of the land. True. The last day of the Shemitah, it is called Elul 29 in the Bible. Elul 29, that's the date. On that day is a complete wipeout. All debt is wiped out. All credit's wiped out. The financial accounts of the nation are wiped clean. So now this was supposed to be a blessing, but the Shemitah turns from a blessing to a sign of judgment or calamity on a nation that has once known God, turned against his ways and turned away, and that comes and strikes the financial realm, economic realm, and the nation's sustenance. So the big question is, could it, is it possible? Oh, there it is. Is it possible? Is is it, the big question, is it possible? So notice he's not putting it out there as, well, the Shemitah, the law of the Shemitah says this. No, it's the mystery of the Shemitah, and it's so powerful it's predictive power is it possible now he's soft selling this mystery is actually in effect now that it's that it is affecting every part of our life that has affected our past our present and will affect our future and the answer the mystery of the shemitah is revealing the answer is yes it is affecting us right now and why should i believe that now let me point out one of the finer points of the mosaic covenant if you would Um, Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 20. It's Mount Sinai, if you would. Children of Israel finally arrived at Mount Sinai, and God spoke these words to the children of Israel who were at the base of Mount Sinai. And uh, there were thunderings and crashes of lightning and trumpets, and the mountain itself was smoking while all this was going on. And here's what it says, opening a uh, part of Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Who is God addressing there? Yeah, not us. Were you in slavery in Egypt? Hmm? No, you were not. I wasn't either. And I wasn't at the base of this mountain, and... and, uh, I did not live in the theocracy of Israel uh, prior to Christ's uh, birth and uh, death and resurrection. No, I didn't. And so what we have in the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant between God and a very specific group of people, a very specific tribe of humanity. And uh, and this was a bilateral covenant. If they kept their end of the bargain, they can stay in the land of Israel that God had prepared for them. If they disobeyed God, well, then God was going to uh, send, well, judgment upon them and get them out of the land. And ten of the tribes, whoosh, they're gone. They're gone forever, right? So um, we've got a real problem here because uh, you pay attention to this. What, were the founders of the United States, the authors of the Constitution of the United States, present here? And were they signatories on the Mosaic Covenant? Answer, no, they weren't. Now, the question is, what is the status now of the Mosaic Covenant? Well, the Mosaic Covenant uh, is, well, it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 
Start at verse 7. Here's what it says. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, and that glory, you can read about it in Exodus 20, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory, and if that if and if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading, but their minds were made dull for this day, and the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who have and, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So you'll notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it explicitly states that the Mosaic Covenant is, well, faded away, and uh, because the glory that uh, came, came after it surpasses it. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, talks about the Mosaic Covenant this way. By calling this covenant new, or the, old, uh, the new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. That's right. Hebrews 8.13 says of the Mosaic Covenant that God has made it obsolete. There is no nation on earth that currently is under the Mosaic Covenant. It has been made obsolete. It is kaput. It is defunct. It is abrogated. It is gone. Goodbye. Yeah, there's no nation on earth that is obligated to keep the year of the Shemitah, and there's no nation on earth that will be punished for not keeping the, the the year of the Shemitah or the Jubilee or any such thing. What uh, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn is doing is, well, um, making a lot of money selling really bad doctrine. And it, this is, and if you, if you would, this just plays into uh, the United States of America and evangelicalism's obsession with trying to crack eschatological codes. And in this particular case, it's not necessarily an eschatological code. It's a code pertaining to how do we understand what's the driving force between particular cycles within the economy and stuff like, could it be the mystery of the Shemitah? Uh, The one who knows his Bible, the answer to the question is no, it cannot. Because again, if God's punishing the United States for not observing the year of the Shemitah, uh, which you need to take a look at all of the um, details as to how on earth the United States would obey this command. Um, it, but why should we? Because the, um, the, uh, the, the Mosaic Covenant is made obsolete. We're not under it. Nobody's under the uh, Mosaic Covenant now. This is just nothing but a bunch of of nonsense, and unfortunately, people are buying into this, and there are a lot of well-meaning Christians who are passing this stuff along as if, oh, well, we've got to, you've got to understand this. The doom's coming on a little twenty-nine because of the Shemitah. No, it it really isn't, and um, those who are telling you that 
are making a lot of money teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Hey, David and Nicole crank the preaching twin spin. <laughs> Your head may explode. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Let's face it, it's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing The Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, The Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of The Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it's actually in effect. The Mosaic Covenant, yeah, it's been made obsolete. You're not under it. 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Helps keep us on the air, pay our bills, you know, things like that. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. That's right. Time for a David Crank update. David Crank, Faith Church, St. Louis. And we're going to throw his wife in for good measure today because she does claim to be a pastor there at uh, Faith Church, despite the fact that God's Word doesn't actually allow for that. go gary wright's Dreamweaver. now uh, david crank he's one of these guys who was out there telling you about oh the life that you can have if you could just you know have faith and stuff like that he's a good friend with um joel osteen and others like that and yes and he does teach the word of faith heresy so uh, the messages we're going to be listening to don't know the names of them um they've retooled their website and so uh you can just hear their recent services so this is last this is sunday and wednesdays uh, services. We'll start off by listening to David Crank to see if we can uh, make heads or tails of what it is that he's preaching about uh, here in this uh, latest sampling of his uh, teaching. Here we go. Would you welcome our television audience in St. Louis and Palm Beach? We're glad that you joined today. I, I brought this couch today because sometimes I need a little therapy. Anybody ever need a little therapy? And, and uh... Yeah, generally not during church. I'm addicted to approval. Uh-huh. I'm really into you approving of me. In fact, sometimes even while I'm preaching, I think, are they liking it? If you guys get quiet, and you might just be listening, then I overanalyze. I go on a witch hunt, addicted to approval. I was bound by approval my whole life because my dad kind of hooked me on it as a child. I stayed with it even after he was gone on to be with the Lord. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And still addicted to approval, looking for somebody else to, to pull my strings. And... One of the ways you can tell, and this is just one quick to us, if you're addicted to approval, is you care what they think more than what is good for you or what you think. Um, I was in a conversation not long ago, and this guy was talking, me, 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 it's about me, 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 me. Uh, were you listening to a Stephen Furtick sermon? Anybody ever had that happen? You didn't raise your hand, so that's you. So those, And so... Um, so now there's about six people at the table. Then you have that awkward moment where everybody else could care less and they're talking to each other and that person's still going and they make eye contact with you. And because you're a pleaser, you're like, oh man, I've got to listen. Anybody been in that situation? You're like, now you're listening to a conversation you could care less about and you're not even hearing them anymore. You're just going, oh my gosh, do you ever take a breath? That means sometimes you're so concerned about them. Now, I think it is nice to be nice. So we do that sometimes to be nice, but I started kind of recently realizing after that conversation, I thought, I'm not going to do that to myself. If they're talking about themselves the whole time, I'm going to say, am I doing this because I'm just being nice and a nice person? Or are they so full of themselves that they just kind of need to know, you know, I think I'll just go ahead and videotape me now. Well, and then I turned 18. 
let them talk to the hand because you ain't got to listen. You get addicted to approval and it can wreck your life. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. When All right. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. I, I, I don't even know if this is good advice because I really am not even sure I know what it is he's talking about. But maybe he's, uh, you know, communicating on a relevant wavelength with the people there at Faith Church. So let's check in with Nicole and her most recent message See if we can figure out what's going on with this. You ever had trouble all around in your life? Trouble, trouble, trouble. Everywhere you looked, there was trouble. Okay, 12. You're lying in church. You're going to start daylight savings. How about lying? How many of y'all had some trouble all around in your life? That's what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> Do people talk like this normally? Or is she just like really trying really hard to make it sound like she's relevant? A thing that just comes to one or two trouble is a thing that happens. And y'all remember that song, Pants on the Ground, Pants on the Ground? <laughs> yeah, I, I happen to remember that song. In fact, I feel a Fighting for the Faith musical interlude coming on. Pants on the ground, pants on the ground, looking like a fool with your pants on the ground, with the gold in your mouth, hat turned sideways, pants hit the ground, call yourself a cool cat, looking like a fool, walking down town with your pants on the ground, giddy up, hey, get your pants off the ground, looking like a fool, walking, talking with your pants on the ground, giddy up, hey, yeah, your- pants on the ground, yeah, I, I remember that, yeah. Thanks for the memories there, Nicole. We continue. Looking like a fool with your pants on the ground. Well, I had that song like melody in my head. And as I was reading my Bible, I heard God speak to my heart. Trouble all around. Trouble all around. What do you get when there's trouble all around? So God sung that into your heart. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I call me skeptical, but I don't think God was singing that into your heart. I hear the Holy Spirit going, and Nicole, this is the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I got a song for you, Nicole, and, and, I, and I want you to share this during your sermon. I know you shouldn't be a pastor, but, you know, it, it's okay. I just decided to go with it. And, um, uh, okay, so here, here it is. Are you ready, Nicole? <clears throat> let, me, let me clear my throat. Yeah. <clears> throat> Uh, trouble all around, trouble all around. What you got when there's trouble? All, yeah, I, I, I'm having a hard time. These these lyrics are complicated. And I thought, mm-hmm, I know. I, I am in that space, Lord Jesus. I have had trouble all around. God, what are you trying to say to me? Because I want to know. Because there have been those times in my life where there's been trouble, trouble, trouble. And I like how you guys jump right on board. Other services, I had to ask them to get involved with the goat sound. But I just want to go ahead and practice the, the, it. The, 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 what? The goat sound? All the way up in the balcony, all the way to the back, and even online this morning. I want to practice it all together for the people who are on TV. Because when we scream with that goat sound from the Taylor Swift video of Trouble, Trouble, Trouble that everybody has seen on YouTube, we all have screamed that way in our bathroom, in private, when nobody is around. So let's just do it together. Ready? One, two, three. Ah! You guys are so good at that. I mean, I, I, you guys get me. Okay. This is a sermon. <laughs> yeah, okay. Let's let's go back with the, to David and see what um where he goes. He started off with therapy and saying that he's addicted to, you know, pleasing people and stuff like that. 
weird way to start a sermon, but before you wreck yourself, we're going to talk a minute about text messages. If you sometimes you you're going to take sermon time to talk about text messages. Okay. The best thing to do in life is to erase the message and delete the number and move on. Somebody ought to say amen. I'm saying that people will manipulate you by text. They'll continue to go and go, and you're like, no, you didn't. Well, here's what I really meant, and you're sucked into, you're typing. No, you're not. They're typing. They're pushing your buttons, and they're controlling you. Really, at the end of the day, it's a root of fear. The Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, 2 Timothy 1.7, but of power and a love and a sound mind. Everybody shout sound mind. Uh, out of context there, I don't think Paul was um, worried about us having a spirit of fear when it comes to being manipulated via text message and or any other thing like that. Um, hmm. How many of y'all want to sound mine? I mean, currently it's debatable, but you do want to sound mine. Okay. Yeah, preaching like this may not help you achieve that goal. The way to have an unsound mind is to continually allow your mind to go, I, I, don't, I can't make them happy. I don't know what to do. What do I do? And you're controlled by them instead of him. Matthew 4, verse 3. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God. Everybody shout, If you. Yeah. Um, so Matthew 4, um, I happen to know what's going on in that passage because I know my Bible. Um, Matthew 4, again, has nothing to do with um, what it is he's talking about. Matthew 4, here's what it says, and uh, we'll start at verse 1. And in fact, let's go to Matthew chapter 3 and let's get a little bit of context so that we understand what was going on here as Jesus was being led into the wilderness. Um, so uh, you got Matthew chapter 3, it, beginning, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So it goes on to describe John the Baptist, uh, describe his choice words for the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, um, who wouldn't be baptized by them and by him. And then he, in verse 11 to chapter 3, it says this, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, uh, who, who, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold... A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this is a showdown, if you would. Remember, um, you know, so here's Jesus. It's declared that this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends on him. We got the voice of the Father. So this is the Messiah. This is the one whom the Father is well pleased. And Satan comes to tempt him the same way he came to tempt Adam and Eve. 
And so this is that kind of thing. But unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus doesn't succumb to the temptation. And watch the devil's temptation. So after, so and after fasting for forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. So Jesus, in his encounter with the devil, is not at his human, you know, strength at the moment. He's not at his best. He's literally in a in, you know, very weak, having not eaten for forty days. So the tempter came and said to him, "If you are the Son of God." Uh-huh. Watch how, see how that temptation is running? Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by, by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. Dot, 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 he's omitted some things. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Notice the devil is the king of uh, taking passages out of context and twisting things, but Jesus puts them right back in his place. And Jesus said to him, Again, it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to him, All of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to Jesus. So, yeah, there's a lot going on there, but I don't see how you're going to, how this is going to be uh, fitting into the context of therapy regarding the need and addiction of uh, approval of people. And well, let's see what he does. If you are the son of God, this is the temptations of Christ. We know that he's tempted three times in a row, back to back. Satan comes and Satan actually quotes the word to him. If you were the son of God, then you could command these stones to be turned into bread. Then Jesus recants that with the word of God. Always answer the enemy with the word. Then he said, well, if you bow down before me, then I will give, if you bow, if you, if you do this, I will give you this. I'll give you the whole world. He wasn't even capable of giving him the whole world. A lot of times people intimidate you and try to convince you that they can give you something that they can't even, they're not even capable of giving you. But we are so inferior, we keep dancing to, we keep doing. No, you have to say, wait a minute. No, I'm not going to do it. Uh, <laughs> so that's the first time I have ever heard uh, Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation of Jesus referenced in in uh, the context of you getting manipulative text messages from somebody and uh, using that as a, um, well, as a remedy for when somebody's trying to manipul- manipulate you via text message. Utterly bizarre. Let's check back with Nicole and see what she's preaching about. Because this is Wow. We understand what it's like to be in trouble. And there is a story from mine and Pastor David's life about one time when we were at Hooters. <laughs> really? <laughs> so you're going to tell the story from you and Pastor David's life at the time when you, the two of you were at Hooters. <laughs> what has happened to Christ's church? What is this? Why would anybody who calls himself a Christian listen to this nonsense and think they're hearing something that God is trying to communicate to them. So tell us about the time that you and Pastor David were at Hooters. Please do tell. That totally explains how trouble can happen in life. But before we get to that, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles and turn to Luke 8 because Jesus walked through 
trouble. And he had so much trouble in Luke 8. It was crazy. If you do not have a Bible, if you don't bring your Bible to church, let me encourage you to do that because I'm here to tell you today that book will save your life. It's not necessarily... Now this, I agree with her and I pray that the people there start reading it in context and start fact-checking what's coming from the stage there at Faith Church St. Louis the words on the page straight from God, but it's the notes that you make when God speaks to your heart and you read that thing and you're like, oh yeah, I got to highlight that next complaint. That's exactly where I'm at. You will open that book later in your life. You will see that highlight. It will jump out at you and it will change your entire day. It'll change your week. It'll change your year because I have had years with hair on it. Trouble, trouble, trouble. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, um, <clears throat> so not a lot of hope there that uh, the, either of those sermons are going to land on their feet and properly proclaim Christ crucified for our sins, call people to repent of their sins and to be forgiven, and to trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. Very little chance of that happening in either of those sermons. And again, I'm asking the question, what has happened to the church I mean, this is just abject nonsense. And you know, again, open Bible fact checking in in context will easily demonstrate that what's coming from today's most popular pulpits was that they're not even a pulpit. That's popular stages being broadcast on uh, television programs that are claiming that they're proclaiming the gospel that they're not doing that at all. If anything, they're scratching itching ears, but teaching total gibberish as if it's biblical doctrine, and it ain't. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to head down to New Spring and hear a sermon um, on the theme of, you know, I love the 90s. Yeah, stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven movement. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision-casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable or if this concept of a vision casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. 
number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. the bad and, well, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via New Spring Church, Anderson, South Carolina. Caleb White presiding. I'm not sure what his uh, status or role or function is over there at uh, New Spring. But the uh, sermon series is entitled, I Love the 90s. Now, keep in mind, the whole point of the I Love the 90s sermon series with all of its 90s graphics and things like that is that's the hook to get, well, pagans and unbelievers to come to church and make them think that church is relevant. That's what this is all about. So uh, we'll see how this plays into and see how good of a job Caleb White does at Proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins, calling people there to repent and to be forgiven, and uh, you know things like that. And we'll take a look at how He handles the biblical text. And unfortunately, I got to tell you, having listened to the sermon, the um, the opening portion of the sermon isn't going to be much better than what we heard from David and Nicole Crank. Yeah, so be advised. So I'm going to go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Caleb White in his I Love the 90s sermon entitled The Process of Progress. Here we go. Uh, I love it when you call me Big Papa. Throw your hands in the air. Abuse it. Oh, snap. Hold up. I love it when you call me Big Papa. Throw your hands in the air. Abuse it. I'm just going to keep writing. I didn't do this earlier, but I ain't stopping right now. Yeah, that's the opening to this sermon. It's not, (laughs) open up your Bible and let's read from the text that I'll be preaching on. No, (laughs) no, it's, I don't know what this is. Yo, 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 check me out. This is going to come in handy later. I just want you to see I got skills on this bike. Yo, hey, my name is Caleb and I'm not Perry, but I'm preaching tonight and you're here so you can't leave. So what's up? Hey, tonight's going to be awesome. Uh, but before we get started, I want you to do me a favor. Look at somebody, straighten the whites of their eyeballs, and I want you to say, we're going to have fun tonight. <laughs> say, tonight. Yeah, because everybody knows that going to church, it's all about the fun, you know? That's why we go to church. We're going to have some fun. The, the 1990s was the, and listen, I love music. I love music today. I think it's great. I love old people music. No offense if you're old. I love music. I'm a music fan, and I am here to say... Yeah, that's great and all, but isn't the job of a pastor during the sermon to preach the word? ...that I have an unbiased opinion that the 90s was the greatest decade of music we've ever experienced. 
Yeah. And listen, I'm not just talking about a particular genre. Because you know, I get some nerves when people say this all the time. That's just not my preference. Let me tell you what your musical preference is. Whatever your mom was playing in the car when she picked you up from school is your musical preference. Okay, for me, this is just, this was the 90s for me. My musical preference was, uh, and I said, hey, pretty lady, won't you give me a sign? I'll do anything to make you mine on mine. I'll do your bidding. Be at your beck and call. I never seen anyone looking so fine. Man, I gotta have her. She's a one of a kind. I'm going once, going twice. I'm sold to the lady in the second row. She's an eight, she's a nine, she's a ten. I know she got ruby red lips, blonde hair, blue eyes. Now I'm about to bid her my heart goodbye. That was the 1990s for me. John Michael Montgomery, my mom loved country music. So I was listening to John Michael Montgomery and Garth Brooks and whose bed have your boots been? Shania Twain, she's killing it. Then I found out she's from Canada, kind of broke my heart, but it's all good. Um, so country, but listen, I get it. Some of you, but, but listen, uh, country was not the only genre that killed it in the nineties. Okay. Let's you want to talk, you want to talk hip hop? You want to talk hip hop? I got you dog. Let's talk hip hop. Mace. Puff Daddy, this was before he was Diddy, this was before it was any, Puff Daddy, let's talk uh, Tupac, Shakur, hip hop was fresh in the 90s, it was banging in the 90s, uh, Biggie Smalls, let me tell you something, you know what happened in my spirit, the first time I ever heard, I love it when you call me Big Pop, you know, here's what my thought was, you know, no one's ever called me Big Papa, but I bet if they did, I would love it. I said, man, that's a killer song because it's just the truth. I love, I'd love it if you call me Big Papa. Hip-hop wasn't the only genre along with country that killed it in the 90s. R&B. R&B was that gas in the 90s. Let me tell you, uh, a couple of artists. Uh, Usher. <laughs> if you can turn on an Usher song and not enjoy it, your ears are broken. Okay, uh, let's see who else we got in the 90s uh, besides Usher. Okay, okay. Boys to men, a little bit. And how about this? Everybody in the 90s was jamming to R. Kelly until he peed on that girl and things got really weird. And everyone just tried to, we tried to forget about that, right? And we should forget about that, God. Why? Why R. Kelly? Right? Anyways, I'm sorry. I don't even know what I'm talking about. The 90s were awesome. That's what I'm talking about. And music was progressive and technology was progressive. But here's what I know most. The 90s were fun, man. They were fun. And I just started thinking this weekend when I was getting ready for for church today, I was like, man, let me just think about all the stuff Jesus has done in my life. See, I'm the guy, I have the story where I used to be blind, but now I see. And I used to be lost but now I'm not lost anymore. Now I'm found. And I used to be deaf, but now I hear, see, I used to be the guy that was dead and now I'm alive. And I started thinking, if, if there's anybody else that's got the same story as me, like you were dead and now you're alive and we get together at church on Sunday. We- you know, you'd think that this would segue into the gospel because he's using the slogans that go along with gospel preaching, is he not? We should probably feel like we're alive. You know what I mean? It should probably feel like a church service where some of us come together and be like, hey, this week was tough, but you know what? I'm not dead anymore. I ain't dead no more. That's me. That's me. I'm not dead anymore. And I'm not going to get up on stage and preach like I'm dead. And I don't expect you to sit there and listen like you're dead. All right. So I know we got, listen, I know this church is filled with a bunch of recovering Baptists. So I know you might not know what it's like to hit somebody with an amen or a, or a preach white boy or something. If you don't talk about my mom or anything like that, we'll be good. You can say anything you want to hit me with an amen. If it's bad, just let it slide. I don't need to know if it's bad. Okay. Just let it go. But here's what progress looked like for me 
in the 1990s, okay? The year was 1996. <laughs> she got real serious. I didn't mean for it to. <laughs> the year is 1996, and I have just learned to ride a bike with no training wheels. I'm a young cat. I'm a young cat. And, uh, and so my mom, I was on my way to a soccer game. I was on a team. All I remember is I was on a team. We had purple jerseys. And my mom said, hey, you know what? Let's swing by Granny and Pitball's house and show your Pitball that you can ride a bike with no training wheels. And I thought, great idea. Pitball's going to learn today that I learned how to ride a bike with no training wheels. So you know what I did? I didn't even put a helmet on because I didn't need a helmet because I was just going to go straight down the driveway, let him know what it was, and then I was headed to my soccer game. So I said, head to the top of the driveway, Pitball, check me out. And I'm going to hold on to this so I don't do it again. And I mounted up on the wings of eagles at the top of the driveway. And I set my sights on the bottom of the driveway. I'm thinking I'm made for this. And about halfway down the driveway, I caught what we in the biz call the speed wobble. You ever, <laughs> you ever had the speed wobble? Let me tell you something if you don't know about speed wobble. This is what the speed wobble looks a little something like this. <laughs> and for whatever reason, when you catch speed wobble, you know what your first thought isn't? Oh, they made a bike. It's got brakes. That's not what you think when you catch speed wobble. My first thought was, <laughs> take my hands off and just hope for the best, right? So I don't remember the rest of the story, but what my mom says is that I was flying down the driveway, catch a speed wobble, take my hands off, wham! Straight in the back of my mom's minivan. And what she says next is I pulled my head back to tell her I was okay. And the taillight was sticking out of my forehead. And so off I was to the hospital to get my first stitches. And that was my progress in the 1990s. I still have a, like a Harry Potter looking scar up here on my forehead to, to prove it. But here's the deal. <clears throat> Every single one of us uh, has kind of experienced this moment where we do a little bit of a, a little bit, we catch a little bit of speed wobble when it comes to following Jesus. We catch a little bit of a, you know, may, here, here's the deal. Maybe you, you haven't caught this. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to following Jesus. Maybe it's been easy for you. And I'm glad you got saved last Sunday and you haven't had the time to make a bad decision. The speed wobble when following Jesus. Now notice here, um, I think this is an allusion to the fact that we as Christians still have a sinful nature. We still sin. And so kind of the expectation is, is, well, now that I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to, you know, fly. I'm supposed, you know, whatever. And, and the problem is, is that um, you still have a sinful nature. And if you're a Christian like anybody else who's a red-blooded Christian, then Romans chapter 7 describes your walk with Christ a lot more accurately than, uh, than well, this idea that somehow I'm just getting better and better. And, you know, Paul says in Romans 7, things I don't want to do, I do. Things I want to do, I don't do. Who will save me from this body of death? But then Romans 8 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's this kind of talk here that, and I'm convinced, Opinolagus is still working behind the scenes here, and he's going to confuse law and gospel and talk about Christian progress in a way that it's all about you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and it's all about how more obedient you are. 
Um, but see, here's the thing. If that's going to be your focus and the motivating factor and you're going to preach the law, 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 law as as if somehow that's going to th- be the thing that's going to finally convince you to to hunker down, then you don't understand that it's the gospel that's the driving factor. It's in the driver's seat regarding Christian sanctification. The Christian life is one of daily repentance and daily being forgiven of our sins. You want to make progress in Christian sanctification. You're not going to get it by only exclusively focusing in on the law. It's got to be law and gospel rightly divided. We got a problem here. So uh, so he's talking about, well, you know, the, that Christian life, it could be tough sometimes. And oh, yeah, it can be. And uh, you find yourself hitting a speed wobble. And so what's the solution? The forgiveness of sins. What does John say in 1 John? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we, as Christians, we need to hear the gospel. Well, let's see if he preaches the gospel to us. I mean, he understands it in some sense. I mean, he was dead and now he's alive. He's blind and now he sees. Okay, tell me more about that. Yet, Give it a little bit of time and you'll catch a little speed wobble when it comes to following Jesus. But here's what I want to say. In that moment, when I hit the back of that minivan, my progress stopped. And so what I want to talk about tonight for a few minutes is this. What do we do when spiritually our progress stops? What do we do? Because every person in this room and on every single New Spring campus tonight is going to have to know what to do when our spiritual progress stops. So in order to get into it, where we get this whole idea of spiritual progress in the first place is a passage in scripture. If you have your Bible tonight, I just want to say this. If you're one of those type A people and you love like super neat, like point one and point one A and one B, tonight is going to drive you crazy. So just sit there and listen and then go back and watch online and take notes. Okay. Cause I'm all over the place. I'm not type A. I'm type. Hey, what's up? I don't know. I don't, that was stupid. Can you stop talking about yourself? Okay. So, so here's the deal. Second Peter chapter three. Verse 18 is where we're going to start. And what? <laughs> oh, man. So here's another problem. Okay. Are you familiar with 2 Peter? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. So that's kind of a strange thing. And oh, and by the way, this was the, uh, the verse used to kind of kick off the whole I Love the 90s sermon series by Perry Noble the week before. But if you're familiar with 2 Peter, then you'll know something about 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And here's what it is. Are you ready? It's the last verse of 2 Peter. The, how can you possibly know anything rightly about what 2 Peter is about if you're going to key in on and do an entire sermon series based upon the final verse of 2 Peter chapter of Second Peter, without even really working your way through the rest of the text. I mean, it's not like Second Peter's all that long. I mean, three whole chapters. Woo! Yeah, that <laughs> you might take one chapter one week, you know, and the second chapter the the next week, and you can preach on chapter three, the third. You could do it in three weeks in depth if you wanted to. Um, <laughs> being that it's only three chapters long, you could probably. Read the entire thing in like one church service, but so here's here's the verse out of context without any regard for what precedes it, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Now notice it says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, why would he say, but grow in the grace uh, and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Because if you know the epistle, then you know that um, what Peter's up to. I'll start at chapter 2, verse 1, just to kind of give you a flavor for this epistle. Here's what Peter writes. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them... The way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed in, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Well, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of the defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, these false prophets, uh, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Uh huh. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his transgression by a speechless donkey when it spoke with a human voice, and restrain the prophet's madness. These are waterless spirits, mists driven by a storm. From them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. You kind of get the flavor of what's going on here? So Caleb White here from Newspring, following the lead of uh, Perry Noble, who started this, you know, I Love the 90s sermon series the week before, uh, we're going to, this idea of spiritual progress, yeah, we need to have progress. Comes from Second Peter chapter three, verse eighteen, the very, very last verse of Second Peter. So, whatever came before it, not important to Caleb, not important to Perry Noble. Nope, nope, we're not going to preach on that. We're just going to key in on verse eighteen that says, "But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord." And everybody knows what that means. That means obey Jesus and try harder to be obedient. But notice the text says, "Grow in the grace." and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the reason why Peter is saying that is because he's warning against false prophets and false teachers who are exploiting them and teaching things they ought not to teach. The, the solution 
for that is to know your Bible, to grow in grace, rightly understanding law and gospel, and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You can say, Peter's saying, listen, listen, you need to read your Bible. Read your Bible. Know the Word. Know what our Lord and Savior did and taught so that you will not be deceived by these false teachers. That's really kind of the plea going on there at the tail end of Second Peter. But Caleb, you know, well, following the lead of Perry Noble is just going to jump right on the bandwagon. So it's all about progress. You got, you got to learn how to fly. You don't want to get a speed wobble. Uh-huh. Okay. And this is the verse that Pastor Perry used last week to get the series kicked off. And this is what this is. Peter is just a guy that was following Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus with him his whole life. And at the end of Jesus's life, he tells Peter, I want you to be in charge of the church. I want you to make sure the church is healthy, make sure it's growing, make sure it expands all over the world. And, and so Peter writes a letter to a whole... So New Spring holds to the primacy of Peter? Are they Roman Catholic? A whole bunch of people that are just trying to follow Jesus like me and you. He just writes a letter. And at the very last bit of the letter... This is how he signs it off. This is how you, you this is, this is uh, Peter's Facebook message to us. This is how he signs off on it. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says, but grow. And the reason why there's a but is because of all the warnings about false teachers and false prophets in the chapter and a half preceding that. Um, he, sends, he writes this whole letter, all of his experience, all of his time with the church. And the way he signs off is, hey, Grow. Make some progress in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. In the what? In the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Grace. That's a gospel term. Knowledge of Jesus has to do with knowing what he said, did, and taught. That would require you to read your Bible and stuff. Watch how he interprets this, though. He sees grace and knowledge as obedience, and that's not what this text is actually saying. And I think if Peter was up here preaching tonight, what he would say is, hey, guys, when you come together on a Sunday night, when you, when you show up to have church together, when, you know, forget what you, what you did this week, forget all the worries you're bringing into church service with you. When you show up together, let's make sure we're making some progress with our, in, in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. But see, my, my, uh, my mom and dad used to say something to me all growing up. They used to say, hey, consider the source. Anybody hear this? Anybody ever hear this growing up? Anybody ever say this? I think this might be one of those things we say in the South. Hey, consider the source, brother. So I was like, so I'm trying to figure out what that means. And then I realized, oh, so if somebody gives you advice, you need to think for a second before you take their advice, right? So like if a guy walks in here and he's, you know, 300 pounds overweight, it's not because he has health issues. It's because he just can't control his, his eating, right? He's just got bad habits. I, nobody in here would probably look at that guy and be like, hey, dude, you're doing any like part-time, like physical training, you could be my personal trainer. Or if somebody's just, just financially, they're just in bad shape, right? They're just debt up to their eyeballs. You're probably not going to call them and be like, hey, dude, I know you, you're probably super busy. Um, do you have any free time? You can give, give me some like financial coaching. We wouldn't do that. But we do that with our spiritual lives all the time. See, we'll show up to people we got no business showing up to, and we'll let them give us all the advice in the world for how to, how to handle our spiritual life. And so I want to take a look at this, and I want to give some credibility or find out if they're... So notice, he, he read the text, and he even reiterated the words, grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And already he's taken this to mean something about, you know, 
you know, obedience of the kind, well, you don't go to consider the source. You don't go to somebody who's overweight and ask them to be your physical trainer, you know, or somebody who's in debt and ask them for financial advice. So already he's tweaking this, which tells me he has no clue what the phrase grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ means. He assumes he knows what it means. It's got to mean just, you know, brute level, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, obedience, right? It's got to mean that, but that's not what it says, grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is any in the life of Peter and why we should listen to him when he says, hey, grow, make some progress. Why is Peter saying this? So turn your Bibles to the, or just look up here. Luke chapter five is the story when Peter first meets Jesus. And this is how their relationship gets started. And this is how a lot of our relationships with Jesus get started too. Luke chapter five, verse one says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret, this is the Sea of Galilee. You've probably heard it if you've ever read the Bible. If not, it's just, it's, it's a lake over in Israel. And the people were crowding around Jesus and they're listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge, two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Okay, so they just finished a whole bunch of fishing and they're showing up on the shore and they're, just, they're washing their nets out, right? They're trying to clean them out because they're done for the day. Uh, it's, this is a super normal, everyday, blue collar kind of, kind of fisherman. This, this is, this is, these are the guys that are hanging out. And Jesus gets into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. This is Peter, this is Simon Peter. And he asked him, hey, put out a little bit from the shore. And then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. So do you have this picture in your head of what's happening? These people are standing on the shore. Jesus gets in the boat and pushes out just a little bit so he can get a little bit away from the people and kind of talk to more than one person at once. When he finished speaking, he says to Simon, he says to Peter, hey, put your, put your boat out into the deep water, let down the nets for a catch. But they're washing out their nets. They've been doing this all night. And Peter answers the way any of us would answer. Master, we've worked hard all night and we ain't caught nothing. Anybody ever feel like that in life? It's like, man, I've been fishing my whole life. I ain't caught nothing. Yeah, now the narcissistic eisegesis begins. Read yourself into the text. Uh Uh-huh. Watch this. He's going to leave out the end of this story, and the end is where the gospel really comes into play. Let's see what he does, though. I felt like that before. Man, I've been doing this my whole life. I've been trying to do it this way, and I haven't caught anything. And Jesus says, yeah, go back and do it again. And this is, this is the secret here. If you, if you want to know a secret to spiritual progress, it's... Oh, so here in Luke 5 is the secret to spiritual progress. No, this is not what that's about at all. Let me read the story so you can see what's really going on here. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that's Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. So notice, Jesus is teaching from the boat because there's a great crowd, so he's teaching them there. So who's listening to Jesus preach? Peter is. Yeah, what's he doing? He's you know probably manning the oars and making sure that the boat doesn't wander from the shore so that Jesus can give his sermon and teaching. So he's listening to all that Jesus is preaching and teaching about, right? So then verse 4, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. This is not a spiritual secret, okay? This is not. This text isn't about Peter's spiritual progress at this point. Not at all. Well, 
Watch what happens. So Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. Right? So who's the fisherman here? Who's the rabbi? Yeah, Peter's the fisherman. Jesus is the rabbi. Who's the, who's supposed to be, be who's supposed to be the expert on fishing? Peter is. But he says, "All right, cuz you say so, I'll I'll let down the nets." And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. So it's like, yeah, we get, hey guys, get over it. We need help, right? And so they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, watch this, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me. I am a sinful man, Lord. Peter saw this for what it is. Number one, miraculous. Number two, what does Peter do for a living? He's a fisherman. He's, a, he, he's, he's in the fishing business. And Jesus here demonstrates that he has the miraculous power at any time of the day to summon fish, to fill nets. It's so much so. I mean, this is a haul that they're going to make a lot of money from, a lot of money. And Jesus isn't about making money, not at all. And this makes Peter realize just how sinful he is and how holy Jesus is. And his initial response is, away from me, I am a sinful man. And he says this at Jesus' knees, right? Here's what verse 9 says. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to him, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. Uh-huh. This is a miracle that demonstrated who Jesus was, how sinful Peter was, and made him realize this. And Jesus says these words of comfort, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Grace, peace, do not be afraid. And they end up leaving everything, including this miraculous, this would have been a huge amount of money for them. They left it all, and they followed Jesus. So that's what's going on in this text. Let's see if Caleb figures that out, or if he's going to just miss all the important gospely parts and preach the law to people. It's this statement right here that Peter makes. He says, I've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, Jesus, but because you say so, I will. Because you say so, I will. Jesus, this doesn't make any sense in my current situation. Financially, I don't have enough money to give. Because I know what you say about giving, whatever, but I'm just telling This isn't a tithing text. Why are you turning into a tithing text, Caleb? You're twisting God's word here. Telling you, if I give, one of my bills isn't getting paid. But because you say so, I will. Jesus, do you know? Do you know? There is no commandment to tithe in the new covenant know what he did to me? Do you know how he treated my kids? I can't forgive him. You know what? Because you say so. Because you say so, I will. Uh, So here's the secret to spiritual progress. And that's not what this text is about at all, is it? Nope. Caleb is utterly clueless about what this text is. He's utterly clueless about what the phrase 
grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's clueless as to what that means, too. Jesus, uh, I'm not real sure you know the kind, of, the kind of parents that I have and the kind of things that they said to me growing up. There is no way that I'm calling my dad and trying to reconcile this relationship. You know what? Because you say so, I will. Because you say so, Jesus, I'll do it. I'll do it. See, see, here's the thing, guys. I don't think people have a hard time believing that Jesus was real. You can read a history book and find out he was real. I don't think people have that hard of a time believing he was God. I just think people don't want to do what he says. Yeah, so there it is, stark naked obedience. You're right. People don't want to do what he says because they are sinful by nature. Yeah, that's what sinners do. They sin. I mean, let's just be honest. Because every single one of us wants to be the God of our own life in some way. And you wouldn't, man, I wouldn't stand on stage and say that. But you know what? I've acted like that. Well, then that's true. You're, you're describing sinful behavior. What's the solution for our sin? Answer, a crucified and risen Savior and our sins being forgiven. I've acted like that. See, see, um, here's, here's the, the funny thing. If we were all to go out tonight and we were all to go out on the lake, it was a beautiful day today up here in the upstate. I would like to be on the lake today. We go out on the lake and uh, we're hanging out and this, this cloud, these clouds come through and it's just wicked dark and we just know hey, it's about to go down on this lake where the storm is about to crush us. We need to get off this water. And the captain comes out, he opens the door and he goes, all right, storm's getting ready to hit. So we got to anchor down. He'll be like, all right, good idea. Storm's coming. We need to anchor down. And uh, the captain says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to take the anchor. I want you to throw it right into the middle of the boat. We'd all be like, uh, hey, Cap, you had a couple of drinks? Because I'm not sure you really know how an anchor works. And he'd be like, uh, no, 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 no. Listen to me. This boat, this is a big boat. This is a successful boat. This boat has no holes in it. I checked it. I've never, had a, I've never had anything happen in this boat. Believe me, I've been doing this a long time. The anchor is going to work. Just put it in this boat. It's a sturdy boat. See, all of us would say, Captain, that's not how an anchor works. You're supposed to put the anchor in something that's not going to move. You're supposed to sink that anchor down into the ocean floor because that's not going to move. So when a storm comes, when the winds change, when the waves get big, the boat's going to be fine because it's attached to something that's not going to move. And I hate to break it to you, but some of us here tonight, you've attached your anchor to something that's all over the place. You've put your anchor in your 401k or in your health or in a relationship or in a salary or a promotion that you hope to get. And what's going to... Yeah, this uh, sermon apparently is a musical. What's going to happen? The problem is when a storm comes, it's going to wipe you out. So you better, so listen to me. Tonight, before you leave, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, I don't need to say another word. That's the last thing you need to hear me say. Uh, okay, so you, they want to put their faith in Jesus for salvation. What does that mean? Um, at, you know, can you explain something about why we need to do that? You know, talk about the law and how we're sinners and Christ dying for our sins. You know, something to that effect. You want people to be saved tonight. Well, you got to preach the gospel, you know, and that means you have to preach the law too. You're kind of preaching the law, but you're not really connecting how the gospel then connects to that law. You need to leave church tonight with a relationship with Jesus as your Savior because it's the only thing that matters. It's the only anchor that's going to hold when the storm comes, and it doesn't matter come hell or high water, it's going to hold. I promise you that. I have that testimony to share. Come hell or high water, the anchor in Jesus Christ will hold. You see, here's what I've heard people say, man, I don't... I don't want to follow Jesus because of what it's going to cost me. Man, I... 
yeah, can you tell us about what Jesus has done for us? Because you're t- basically saying that oh, the only thing that really matters as far as following Jesus is stark naked obedience. What has Jesus done for us again? Can you talk about how he died and bled and forgives sinners? Caleb, I hear what you're saying, man, and I, I hear this, but here's the deal. I'm this close to this promotion. And if I go into the office and I start doing this whole honesty thing that Jesus wants me to do, I might lose my job. See, Caleb, I I hear what you're saying, that Jesus wants me to follow him. But if I go in there and if I confess to my wife what I've been doing, ooh, it could go bad for me. And people are afraid of following Jesus because of what what it's going to cost. And let, let let me... Can we talk about the forgiveness of sins that Christ, despite knowing everything that we've done wrong, tells us to confess our sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you think the gospel has something to do with these sins that you're describing? Or is the solution just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, try harder and be more obedient we say this, make no mistake about it. If you follow Jesus, it's going to cost everything that you have. It's going to cost you every regret you have. Yeah, why don't you tell us how it cost Jesus everything he had? Have from your past. It's going to cost you all the shame that you have from every dumb decision you made before you started following Jesus. So he's making reference to the gospel. Will he preach it? It's going to cost you all the hurt that you have in your life from all the promises that somebody broke to you. It's... No, he's not preaching the gospel. Not yet. It's going to cost you all the confusion that you have about your future. It's going to cost you all that worry that you've got going on in your life because you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. It's going to cost you everything that you carried in with you tonight. If you decide to follow Jesus, it's going to take everything you... If you... Yeah, this is all... Everything's on you. This is law. This is not gospel. God. And the secret to spiritual progress. And this is when the progress starts for people. Oh, the secret to spiritual progress. He found it right there in Luke chapter 5. Peter is when he says, Jesus, you know what? No matter when, no matter what it costs, no matter what it takes, because you say so, I will. Right now, Jesus, because you say so. Yeah, and you've twisted Luke 5 to come find this spiritual secret that really isn't there at all. I will. And I haven't asked this at any other service today, but just let me ask you this question before we keep going. I don't know how I feel like the Lord wants me to ask this. What's the last thing Jesus told you to do? Have you done it? Because if not... Yeah, he warned me not to listen to false prophets and false teachers who twist his words. What are we doing church for? My job is to get up here and and spur you on to love and good deeds and get you to do... Your job is to preach the word, proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. The job of the Holy Spirit is to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, not you. What Jesus is telling you to do, and I just feel right now like God's telling me to ask that question. What's the last thing... Oh, yeah, so God's communicating to you now directly via direct revelation. I don't think so. He asked you to do. Have you done it? Let's jump back in. I don't know. That was, that was for somebody in here on some campus tonight. So here's the deal. Peter sees some real serious progress in his life with Jesus. I mean, some crazy, crazy, crazy good things start happening in Peter's life. And it wasn't always easy to follow Jesus. Now, apparently he's done with Luke chapter 5. He didn't even get to the punchline, which means he whatever he told you about this text is not what this text is about because he didn't really finish the story. Uh-huh. Jesus, but this is, I mean, y'all, there's some awesome stuff. There's two people in the history of the world that I know of that have walked on water, and Peter's one of them. 
He walks on this water with Jesus, kind of a crazy story. Go look at it. If you're looking for something to read in the Bible this week, go do a study on the life of Peter. It's crazy interesting. Does some awesome stuff. There's one point uh, in, in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey man, I want to give you the keys to the kingdom. And I don't know what that means, but that's awesome. That would be a sick thing for Jesus to say to you. Yeah, you clearly have no idea what it means. Is referencing the office of the keys. Um, wow, don't you think if you're going to be preaching to people, you might have studied and shown yourself approved so you at least understand what the text means there? But hey, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And there is some insane spiritual progress that happens with following Jesus in Peter's life. But, but that's not how it always went. See, the religious people of the day, they got fed up with Jesus teaching this blasphemy because what they thought was, you've got to work your way to God. You've got to get it. You've got to get your life in order. You've got to have it all together. You've got to clean it up a little bit before you can get to God. And Jesus shows up and he says, no, you don't. He says, I'll take care of that. You've got to believe in me. So again, he knows something about the gospel and, and the fact that it's not, we're not saved by our self-righteousness. He knows that. Yet everything he's preaching is actually a form of self-righteousness. That's all you got to do. And the religious people of the day got so sick and tired. They got so fed up of this blasphemy that this Jesus guy was preaching. that finally they end up arresting him. And they've got him in, uh, you know, they've got him held up in handcuffs. And, and, and they've got him, they're slapping him. And they're spitting on him. And the disciples are sitting around watching this happen. So notice he's uh, trying to do the Cliff Notes version of Jesus' suffering and death here. Watch what he does with the story because he's not reading it from any text. And, uh, and, and they take Jesus into the court to meet, to, to convict him. And we, we pick up the story here in Matthew chapter 26 where Peter's standing here and he's looking on at this. He's just watching this all happen. And this is what he does. He says, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard watching all this happen. And a little servant girl came up to him and said, hey, weren't you also with Jesus? Weren't you one of the 12 guys that walked around and, and like believed that what he was saying was true and, and whenever he said do something, you did it and you followed his teachings? Weren't you one of those guys? Because listen, they've just arrested Jesus. They're trying to rally the rest of his troops and they're trying to take them all out while they can. So if he was to admit right here that he was with Jesus, there's some serious repercussions that are gonna happen. This could get dangerous for him. Look what he says. He says, weren't you with Jesus? This little girl. He denied it for all of them. I don't know what you're talking about. And I want to stop here because you might be watching this from somewhere that's not in the South or some other part of the world. And I want to tell you something about growing up in the South. <clears throat> you can talk trash to me if you want to. You can get mad at me. You can say things to me. And it might take me a while, but I'll get over it. I'll be all right. You, you know, you can do some pretty mean stuff to me and I'll figure out how to forgive you. But if I'm with my boys and you start coming at one of my boys like that, listen, I got two brothers. And they're not the most sane people in the world. That's just the truth. And my older brother, if you were to spit on me and slap me in front of him, it'd be the last thing you ever did. I promise you that. So as a Southern man reading this story, I'm reading about Peter sitting here looking at Jesus, who he spent every waking moment with for the last three years. Jesus has given his entire life for this guy. I mean, invited him into the closest environments possible. When he started sinking under the water and almost drowned, Jesus picks him back up. And in the one moment that we have recorded in Scripture where it looks like Jesus needs to have his boys with him, Peter leaves him hanging. And there's something, and I know Jesus has got to keep changing me because there's something inside of me when I read this story. I want to grab Peter by his throat and just, just crush him. So I'm like, dude, why are you being so soft? 
Your boy needs you right now. Go help him out. Don't just leave him hanging. And right at the moment when I want to get as mad as I can at Peter, you know what I realize? I've denied Jesus for less than that. At least it was dangerous for Peter. At least there was something at stake if Peter said... Okay, so notice he has an idea how our sin is a betrayal against Jesus. And this is true. So he's preaching the law still. It was weird. So he's preaching the law to convict people of their shortcomings, but preaching the law as the solution to our shortcomings. And so far, we have not had a clear presentation or even explanation of the gospel at all. That he was with Jesus. Some of us in this room, we've denied we know Jesus for a picture of a girl on a computer or a couple thousand more dollars at work for the year or a, a fling on Facebook or some of us have, have walked away from marriages and our kids because we wanted some other relationship with somebody that we, we some of us have denied Jesus and there's no, we're not even in trouble if we do it. Okay, so these are sins, right? So he's preaching the law to convict people of their sins, which is a good thing. What's the solution? We're not, there's nothing dangerous that's going to happen. We've walked away from Jesus for whatever we wanted. So what do you do, church? What do you do? Because every single... Repent and be forgiven. Christ bled and died for these sins. Every one of us is going to be faced with this decision. Every single one of us is going to have this moment where we sit and we reflect and we go, man, what do I do? Well, Peter failed the test, and we fail the test daily the way you're describing it. So what's the solution? Is it not Christ crucified for our sins? Please get to the gospel. I've walked away. I've denied Jesus. I mean, no offense, but this is a little girl, and I'm not for hitting little girls. But if this, this girl can't do anything to me, I'll tell her, yeah, I was with Jesus. Go tell your little girls to come back, and I'll tell them too. You find your dad, I got something for him too. That's what, that's what Southern me wants to do. But Peter says, no, I don't, I don't know Jesus. Denies him three times. And what I want to share tonight is the reason why I am a believer and follower of Jesus. Is it because he forgives sins, even the sin of Peter denying him? I hope so. Because so far this has just been nothing but law, and the solution is more law. Where's the crucified and risen Savior? And, and he's even talking about Jesus' death and suffering, but he's not talking about it in a way that's connected to the theology behind it of why Jesus was suffering. Because let's pick the story up in John chapter 21. Look what happens. John chapter 21, turn there. <coughs> so Peter denies Jesus. They take Jesus to the cross. They kill him. He's dead. And the disciples have just seen the guy that they have committed their entire life to is gone. And they have this moment of mass confusion where they go, what do we do now? I mean, what, what do we do now? I've just spent the last, every day for the last three years following this guy and taking every word that he said literally and watching him bring people from back to the, back to life that were dead. And I watched blind people walk up and he just touched them. And I watched him spit in the mud one time and rub it on this guy's eyes and they open it. I mean, I've seen some incredible things over the last three years. Now what? What do I do? So Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel and James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples, they were all sitting together. And Peter says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going fishing. And, you know, in kind of a light note, if you're from the South, if you're, if you're a country, black man, white man, it don't matter who you are, you know what happens when you have a bad day? You're going fishing. 
I ain't even got a, I ain't even got a worm on the hook, but I'm going to go stand out there with my phone off and fish for a little bit. This is an easy thing. This is on a, on a real basic level. This is just Peter going, all right, I'm, I'm out, man. I'm going back to this. But when you look deeper and you see that this is what Peter did for a living, here's what Peter's saying. I'm going back to what I used to do. I'm going back to what I know. I'm going back to that neighborhood. I'm going back to that group of friends I got no business being with. I'm going back to all those decisions. Yeah, uh, there's a reason why this is not uh, a plausible interpretation of what's going on in John chapter 21. And the reason why is because John chapter 20 precedes John chapter 21. And if um, Caleb would have done his homework and actually read his Bible and understood you don't just go taking things out of context and then telling stories about them as if somehow you can figure out the theology apart from the context, he would know something. John chapter 20, now remember he's in John chapter 21, John chapter 20 begins this way. Now on the first day of the week, by the way, Jesus has been crucified, he has been buried, and he's been dead since Friday. And so the first day of the week is Sunday, and here's what it says. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciples, and they were going toward the tomb. But both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not, uh, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. Mm-hmm. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that, they must ri- that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw the two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. When they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they had laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, Uh, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Well, unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and do, and put your hand and, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. And he said to him, You have believed because you have seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now that's all of John chapter 20. So John chapter 21 begins this, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter called, uh, uh, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and the two brothers of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, Caleb here is trying to convince us. Well, this means that, uh, you know, Peter's despairing, Jesus is dead, and and he's just going to go back to his old lifestyle. That's not possible, because Peter knows with absolute certainty that Christ has been raised from the grave. He knows that Jesus is alive. He's heard him, touched him, you know, heard him speak. You know, he was there. Jesus appeared not only the night of the resurrection, the day of the resurrection at the at that night, but on the following Sunday night, Jesus appeared in the upper room and had that confrontation with Thomas. Peter knows Jesus is alive, so this interpretation that Caleb is getting giving us is completely untenable and ignores all the facts of the text when you put it in context. And that's the problem now, isn't it? He's been doing that the entire time he's been trying to preach God's word, ignoring what the texts say and just wandering off on his own as if he knows better than what the texts say, not paying attention to any of the details. He's not exegeting. He's just making stuff up. We continue. Decisions that I was making beforehand that I know I probably shouldn't be doing, but this following Jesus thing, it didn't work. I'm going back. That's what Peter's saying here. And look at this. The other disciple said, We'll go with you. And that's not what he was saying at all. Read chapter 20. So they, they have this moment where they're following Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Peter catches a little speed wobble. And wham! His progress comes to a stop. And instead of, uh, instead of pushing through, instead of persevering, he does what anybody in this room would do. He just goes back to doing what he's always done. Peter's not a special guy. Peter's just a guy that was trying to follow Jesus and got it wrong. Uh, yeah, that's not what the text says at all. And I want to show you something that happens here. Uh, they went out. <coughs> they got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
if this is what this guy did for a living, no wonder he was so quick to follow Jesus because he was a horrible fisherman. We've read the same story twice and he still ain't caught no fish. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus because they weren't looking for him. Because that's what mistakes will do in your life. You start making some mistakes, you get there are sins, and again, you're not handling this text accurately at all. Get in the habit of making the wrong decisions. You don't want to see Jesus. You don't want that. Verse five, he called out to him, "Hey, friends, y'all got any fish?" And then went, Pfft. "Just kidding, he didn't do that. I was supposed to be a joke. It's all good." Y'all got any fish? No, they answered. Well, he said, "All right, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some." And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of all the fish. Call me crazy, but I've read this story before. I feel like three years before this, when Peter was just fishing for a living and didn't know what, what all uh, he could have with his life, didn't know what all was possible in life, he was just out fishing and Jesus showed up to him then. He showed up to him then in that situation and whatever he had going on in his life. Isn't it funny that he walked away from Jesus and Jesus showed back up to him in the same exact place? Yeah, actually, he didn't walk away from Jesus because he already knew that Jesus was alive showed up to him in the same exact place. And let me tell you something, church. Jesus, they watched him die. It was, this was no joke. This was no smoke and mirrors. This was my eyes watched his last breath be breathed. They, yeah, and by this point, they had seen that he was alive. They watched him die, and here he is alive standing on the shore. And this is why I'm a Christian, because you can't say that and be a Buddhist. You can't say that and be a Muslim. You can't say that your God was dead and came back to life, but I can. And there's a certain peace. Well, I'm glad you're using the resurrection correctly. And a certain hope and a certain clarity and a certain purpose in your life that happens when you can say that about the guy you're giving your life to. Yeah, again, Jesus gave his life for me. Let's get that straight before we talk about the other way around. And so he's sitting there and he shows back up to him. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, he says to Peter, hey, that's Jesus. It's the Lord. And as soon as Peter heard him say it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he's like any man in the south. He took his shirt off when he was on the boat. And he jumped into the water. See, I don't know, but this isn't how I would really react if I saw Jesus. Because I, I kind of tend to think about God like he's just mad at me. And unless I do the right things, like... Yeah, again, Peter already knew that Jesus was raised from the dead. I hope we're getting to the gospel now. He's just going to stay mad at me. Then I start thinking, man, if, if, if the last time I saw Jesus alive was when I told this girl I didn't even know him, I probably wouldn't be quick to see. I'd probably be on the, see him on the shore and be like, all right, well, let's go to the... Other. Read chapter 20. He'd already seen Jesus alive on several occasions. See if there's any fish over there. Because I don't, I don't know, I don't know how he's going to treat me when I go back to the shore. I don't know if he's going to be like, you know, when you like smarted off at your mom and she said, "That's fine, you talk to me like that." You wait till Dad gets home, and you're like, "Oh God, God told Almighty, he's going to grab a belt and he starts popping that belt." <laughs> you know, you just know what's coming. That's how I'm viewing Jesus in this situation. But Peter knows. Peter knows Jesus. He spent every single day with him for three years. And you know what he does? He jumps in the water and he swims back to him. And he, yeah, and he's already seen Jesus alive several times. And he says, I, I don't know. I, I messed this up. But when I was following Jesus before, things were going right. When I was following Jesus before, I had peace and I had clarity. And there was something that was happening in my life when I was following Jesus. And I got to get back there. 
I don't care how much water's in between me and him. I just got to get back there, and I'm praying that. Yeah, that's not what he was saying at all. Like I said, read chapter 20. He's already seen Jesus a few times already. Tonight, that would be your heart if you've walked away from Jesus. That tonight, you would just say, you know, I don't, I don't care what's in between me and him. I got to get back there. I got to get back there. And so he swims back, and then the boat follows him in. The disciples are all there standing on the shore with Jesus. They show up, and he's cooking them breakfast. And I imagine it's kind of a little, little bit of a tense situation where they're, uh, they're, they're wondering what he's going to say. Have this long conversation with him. And then Jesus looks right at Peter. He says, follow me. He says, follow me. Church, the same two words that started Peter's relationship with Jesus are the same two words that kept it going. Um, you, is he going to admit the, uh, the other words? Oh, boy. Um, come have breakfast. So they're having breakfast. John chapter 21, verse 15. Let's take a look at this. I don't know what he's going to do at this point. Uh, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because Peter, because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This was, to sh- this was said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Notice Jesus restores Peter. Peter denies Christ three times. Jesus asks him the question, do you love me? Three times. And then you know, with each one, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. You know, this is feed my sheep, Jesus is saying. I wonder if the reason why uh, Caleb left all that feed my sheep stuff go out of it is because he doesn't want to create the impression that <laughs> that uh, any job of a pastor or, you know, somebody associated with Jesus would be to feed Christ's sheep. Because they're all about entertaining goats out there at uh, New Spring. So uh, he just skips all of that and goes right to the follow me thing. Weird, huh? Yeah, well, let's see if he self-corrects here and fills in the missing data. He hasn't done that at all in any of the texts that he's handled thus far, or I should say mishandled. And it's the same two words that will keep me going and will keep you going and will keep us going in our chance, in our attempt to follow Jesus. And it's not, I told you so. In our chance, in our attempt to follow Jesus. Everything's running through the law. This is not what it means to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not, I knew you couldn't do it. It's not, you idiot. It's not, look how bad you are at this. It's just a simple, grace-filled plea from God saying, just come and follow me. I don't care how bad you're going to be at it. I don't care what mistakes you're going to make. Just get up and follow me again. And listen, there are sins, and it's not just get up and follow me. It's repent and be forgiven. Oh, man. Listen to me. Peter has a decision to make in this moment. Because this is the decision that every single one of us who've ever followed Jesus and walked away, this is the decision that we have to make. Because Jesus is standing on the shore and he's saying, Peter, I'm willing to take you back if you're willing to come back to me. So what decision? What? How are you getting that from this text? Peter is known for several weeks Jesus is raised from the grave. 
decision does he make? I want you to listen to me. He said earlier, because you say so, I will. But if he doesn't say that again, you know what it turns into? Hey, because you say so, I tried. Jesus, because you say so, I tried, but he doesn't say that. He says, you know what, Jesus? Because you say so, I will. And look at what happens. Jesus puts Peter in charge of the church and he leaves and the church starts. Yeah, again, um, are you Roman Catholic? Where does it say Jesus put Peter in charge of the church? Read about the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Peter wasn't presiding. James was. Starts growing and, and Peter gets the chance to share with people in Acts chapter 2. It says Peter stands up with the 11 disciples, all of them that have walked away from Jesus, every single one of them that have denied him. And Peter stands up with the 11. He raises his voice and he addresses the crowd. This isn't the the, the timid, shy, scared little girl, Peter, that we saw in the courtyard that was denying Jesus in front of a little girl. This is big, bold, brave, strong. I'm not scared of you, Peter. And he says, "Uh, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. This is Peter, and he stands up, and he gives his testimony, and he testifies to the grace of Jesus Christ, and he testifies to how, you know what, I walked away a thousand times, and Jesus came after me a thousand and one times, and I made it to this point, and I came back, and he testifies about all the things that Jesus did for him, and look at what happened. Those who accepted his message at the end of his talk were baptized, and 3,000 people were added to the number of believers that day. 3,000 people. To the believers. Yeah, faith has a very important role here. You're not preaching for faith. Peter tells the story of Jesus and what he's done in his life despite all of his mistakes, and 3,000 people give their lives to Christ. Let me tell you why you got to get back on the bike. Peter doesn't give his testimony on the day of Pentecost. What are you talking about? Bike and ride, church, because the best days of your marriage haven't happened yet. The relationship with your kids that's in shambles right now that you want to come back together, it's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet because you're not back on the bike riding around. Because you're not riding the bike. Wow. So the solution to our sin is, well, just uh, resolve to obey. Get busy. I I just got a question. Who told you to give up on your marriage? Who told you to quit believing for your kids to get saved? Who told you to quit giving like you were expecting a miracle? Who told You're starting to sound like a prosperity preacher, Caleb. Who told you to not forgive that person that hurt your feelings? Who told you that? Because I'm reading about Jesus who says, no, 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 forget all that. You follow me. You follow me and we'll take care of it. Jesus doesn't say forget about that. He bleeds and dies for all of that. So please get this picture in your mind. Tonight when you leave church, you get on this bike. You push one pedal at a time. If you fall off, you pick it up. You push one pedal at a time. You fall off, you pick it up. You fall off, you pick it up, get back on, start pushing one pedal at a time. You, 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 you. The solution to your sin problem is you, not a crucified and risen Savior. This is opinionologist. This is the law. This is not the gospel. Wow. You push one pedal at a time because I'm here to tell you you know what I love about my parents when I made that bike wreck when I made a big old fool of myself and got a whole notice he's missed a completely great opportunity to preach the gospel and the forgiveness of sins to Christians but in his theology the gospel doesn't make sense it's in the rearview mirror that's you preach the gospel for the guy who wants to make the decision for Jesus right yeah all of these people he's just nailed every one of them to the wall with God's law leveled them and the solution is you pick up your bike and start riding again 
Wow. A bunch of stitches in my forehead. I got the kind of parents that didn't let that be the last time I rode a bike. They didn't let that be the last time I rode a bike. And I'm here to tell you, you got a father in heaven. He don't want that to be the last time you you follow Jesus. He believes in your ability to follow Jesus. No, he doesn't. God does not believe in your ability to follow Jesus. God (laughs) gives you faith to trust in Jesus and the fact that he has done it perfectly for you. So will you tonight get back on the bike? Just ride again. Just no, thank you. This is just. This sounds like one of those static bikes where you, you pedal and you go nowhere. Just ride again. Just follow Jesus. We're gonna make mistakes. Just ride again. They're called sins. Repent and be forgiven. Let's bow our heads. Close our done. Done. Wow. Total train wreck. So he preached the law. And convicted everybody of their sin and did not give them Christ crucified and risen for their sins. Wow. And that's what we talk about when we talk about preaching that is from the purpose-driven point of view. It's all law, opinion but uh, there's no absolution, there's no forgiveness, and there's no understanding of how to apply the gospel to our sins as Christians, which is exactly what needs to be applied to them. What do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.